The Swithin, Book 2, Episode 10. Welcome to the Swithin. Hey there, this is Scott Tellick, author of The Swithin, the series that retells the real legend of King Arthur and his buddies and friends in a series of epic fantasy novels, and this very podcast. We're going to continue listening to book two, The Sons of Constance, and today's episode will bring us to the end of part one of this book. Um, but remember, if you get tired of listening over several weeks, the entire book is available right now as an ebook and paperback at Amazon and various other online retailers, and the audiobook will be available in moments. It's uh, at Audible right now, being quality assured, and that'll be ready soon. Um, I don't have an intro for you today because I'm super busy trying to find a job. You know, survival, money, you know, food in the mouth kind of thing. And uh, finishing up book three, in which at the end Arthur is born. So that'll be exciting and coming soon. And I'll tell you about that maybe next week. But no time for now, so let's just get right into the story. Bye. Part one, chapter 17. A month to the day after Merlin had told Vortigar that he must die in his tower, Mark was on the beach at Winchester, where Merlin had told him to be. The other messengers who'd gone seeking Merlin were there too, for he'd given them all clear instructions. The air was wet with cold, foggy with low-gray clouds, which left the vegetation dark to almost black, and the beach a ruddy tan where it could be seen beneath the feet of the gathered troops. They stood in rows, the iron of their helmets glinting in the dim light, red surcoats over the dully shining mail of their hauberks, creating a forest of men topped with a layer of sharp, upraised spears. In front of them, the sea was a dark gray, extending not more than a mile out before it was lost to sight of the grayish white of the fog that hung over the ocean. Straight ahead, right where the surface of the sea faded into the background, two large white sails side by side. Everyone saw them, the two white rectangles appearing brightly against the dull expanse of gray, although not everyone knew exactly what they meant. Mark turned his head and saw King Vortigar atop his horse, standing upon the bluff at the back of the beach, surrounded by his advisors and liegemen, also on horseback. They all looked out toward the two approaching sails, which were so abstract as to appear like a vision. Now it was the time for Mark to do what Merlin had told him to do. Make ready to face the sons of Constance, he shouted, for they now return to claim their birthright. The other messengers were spread out among the soldiers, delivering this message as well, seeming for all intents to rally the spirits of the assembled men to face the approaching enemy. Make ready, he shouted, for the sons of Constance have returned. The sons of Constance, says one of the soldiers, grabbing his arm as he passed. Are you speaking of Pendragon and Uther? Yes, that is them, said Mark, pointing at the two approaching sails, and beyond them, where a large complement of additional sails was beginning to appear out of the mist. They're coming back to fight for the land they claim is their birthright. Make ready to defend yourself, he said, and moved on. But he could see by the man's face that he was troubled. The news brought lowered gazes and quiet introspection to that man as he thought on what they were doing. Mark moved among them and spoke loudly, as though to rally spirits, but his words had the opposite effect, not quite by accident, and forced the men who heard them to grow heavy and reconsider the spears and shields they held in their hands. "'Constance was my lord before all of this happened,' said one man. "'I served under Maine during the short time he held reign.' 
We've all served under better masters than Vortiger, said another, and if they're coming back, he looked down and seemed to consider his words, then raised his hand resolutely and spoke boldly. If they're coming back, then I'm to serve a better master today. Constance was ordered to all of us, said another. It's now time to rally behind his descendants and help them achieve their rightful rule, he said. If not, this country will go completely to the Saxons and will be second place in our own land. Constance was never my lord, said a younger man, but I've never served under an honorable king. I don't know what that's like. But King Vortiger will lead us all to our deaths and create the ruin of this realm. If we greet the returning sons with bowed heads and swear fealty, perhaps they'll let us serve under them and make up for some of the damage we've allowed to happen. And look on their size, said another voice. They have three times as many men as we have. They'll easily take us if we don't surrender immediately upon their reaching land. It was true, for now the other ships had emerged completely from the mist behind the two bright white sails in front, and all on land could see that the brothers came on with a huge force of additional men. As the ships grew closer, there could clearly be seen the colors of Constance hanging on their sails, which several of the men recognized from when he ruled the country. Then the front rows of the soldiers dissolved from their order, and without an announcement or organized movement, the men just began to move in a mass toward the water, where they placed their shields and spears down and threw off their surcoats that showed them with the colors of Vortiger, ready to declare their obedience to their arriving new masters. Great masses of soldiers deserted Vortiger right in front of him and moved as one to the ocean where they bowed, leaving only a few standing in place, those toward the rear of the beach, nearer to the king. The majority of those would even desert him after he'd left. Mark also moved to the front where Merlin advised him, ready to declare allegiance to the returning sons as soon as they made their landing. Moving toward the crashing line of waves, he knelt in the gravelly sand and waited. He craned his neck to look back and see King Vortiger there among the bluff at the rear of the beach. Mark saw as he looked out on the ocean, although he was too far away to see his facial expressions. He was still looking a moment later, when the king could be seen turning his horse around and leaving the scene. The horses of his visors soon turned after them, and soon those few who held with the king left too, leading back toward his tower to hold out against the coming onslaught. Part 1, Chapter 18 The most agreed-upon estimates were that the brothers and their army would be at Vortiger's Tower four days after their landing. Merlin had been exactly right to the day about when the brothers would return, and Vortiger took some perverse comfort in the knowledge that everything else he predicted would also come true. It had all brought a remarkable change in him that last week, and he enjoyed watching the surprised faces of all who came into contact with him as they found him in a good mood, chatty and forgiving. On the morning of that fourth day, the enemy army could be seen gathering in the valley below the tower, and Vortiger knew that the final day had come. The mood in the tower became hushed, but electric with tension. The few remaining servants, for most of them had left, went about their business with grim, tight faces. On his way through the great hall, Vortiger was surprised to see Rowena still there, an anxious and tight expression on her face, surrounded by her maids, none of whom seemed any happier. He looked at the group in surprise, then strode right over to them. "'My love,' he said, smiling. "'What are you still doing here? I'm surprised to see that you haven't deserted me yet.' The pained smile on her face was frozen. "'Desert you, my lord?' she asked. He laughed. "'No need to pretend,' the king says. "'I know your father isn't going to let you perish in this tower.' "'Go,' he gestured. "'Have your things brought outside. I know they've been prepared.' 
One of the maidservant's eyes darted rapidly back and forth between the king and her mistress. The surprised eyes of the queen glanced over to look at her, then back at the king, trying to keep a placid expression on her face. "'Master, you think far too little of my faithfulness and devotion,' she protested. Vortiger laughed out loud. "'Yes,' he said, "'perhaps I do. "'But the enemy is just outside,' he pointed, "'and I don't think they'll leave until this tower has been breached. "'I plan to be on the battlement, so even if you're long gone, "'miles away and traveling under protection of your father's Saxon troops,' "'he trained a merciless smile on her, "'I would think that you're right down here, "'faithful to me right up to the fiery end.' He directed a vicious smile at each of the members of her group. Be sure to serve your queen and ensure her safe passage, he said to the servants, and your own. Then he walked to the staircase at the other end of the room and opened the door there. He could see, looking back through the crack beneath the hinges, that the entire group was on its feet the second he was out of sight. He chuckled to himself and continued up to the next floor. When he reached it, Roldan was there with a clergyman he'd brought from town. Roldan had been present when Merlin had predicted Vortiger's death on this day, which clearly influenced his bringing of the clergyman there just then. My lord, he said, arising to approach the king, followed closely by the sympathetic-eyed priest. I found this holy man here to take your confession, he said. Vortiger's face softened at the offer, and his heart broke for the kindness of both men. He was very considerate and thoughtful, and he appreciated that he was acknowledging what Merlin had said and watching out for the king's soul. It was very kind, and the king hadn't foreseen this twist. But as he looked at the holy man, a noble feeling came into his chest, a feeling he wished no more to turn away from. That is very considerate, Roldan, he said, placing his hand on the advisor's shoulder and nodding to the priest standing behind. And I thank you, father, for coming this distance during... He tilted his head to indicate the army is gathering outside, this time. He looked at both of them with smiling eyes as he sighed, and the goodness he saw in their faces expelled any doubt that he may have had. But I cannot. Both men's mouths fell open. But sir, said Roldan, you don't want to. Of course, he couldn't say the unpleasant thing. All of us must be confessed before, and he experienced that problem again. The priest was even more astonished and looked on him with truly gaping eyes while his words came out in short, dumbfounded gasps. But your soul, you'll go to, you won't be allowed in. Vortiger's heart was cheered by the agape concern of the men and he smiled with warm eyes. That is what I have decided, he said with finality. I am going to the battlement, he gestured, and I suggest that both of you get a well away before, and here he paused and his eyes looked slightly away before this tower is destroyed. Then, without looking back, he turned and strode away from the men. He was up the stairs and on the battlement in a moment. He'd ordered the man to bring a chair up there in that morning, and there it stood, in the middle of the empty octagonal surface. It was quite royal, oversized, of course, with gold-plated wood and red velvet cushions. The sun shone down brilliantly on the armies gathered in the valleys below. The farmer whose puppy he'd been offered was sadly having his fields destroyed by the stomping of several nights, and left the hills and glorious mountains arrangements of grass, trees, and rock. It was a spectacular vista all around, and he had to admit that he'd been right. This was a fantastic place for a tower. Now he could look around all he wanted, and for some time he just stood, elbow balanced on one of the crenels and head in hand, marveling at the beauty of the land below. 
The breeze came very strong, but warm and caressing across his face, and without a thought he reached up and removed his crown, tossing it down on the wooden boards with a dull bang. He leaned up on his toes to see the people under his rule running out of the tower while they could, and he watched for a while to see if he could see Rowena or Roldan and the priest, but he didn't see any of them for sure. He knew for a fact that Hanks would make arrangements to get Rowena out of there. He chuckled with amusement as he thought about the scene the Saxon probably expected to face, with Vortiger demanding that she stay and ride out the siege. So he had no concern on that account. There were still a few people of his own streaming out as the armies of the brothers began to scale the hill, and he got involved in watching one or two of them as they made their escape. At one point, he looked down the hill, shining brightly in the sun and dotted here and there with tiny bursts of wildflowers, and he was amazed to think that the two dragons had fought right there, right where it was so peaceful now. Then later, he sat down in the chair, arranging it so that the wind would come right at him, and he closed his eyes and felt the warm sun on his face as he considered whether the floor beneath him would collapse before or after he burned to death. End of part one. That's it for today. Join us next week as the story continues. If you get tired of listening over the course of several weeks, the full ebook and paperback of this novel is available over at Amazon and most other online booksellers. The full audiobook will be available, and it might be by the time you listen to this, over at Audible, where you can also find the first book. Just search for the Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N, or Scott Tellick, T-E-L-E-K. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit the Swithin website by searching the same terms. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe or leave a comment or what have you or whatever you want to do, and we will see you next week. Thanks.